There's an old joke I heard a while back. A man calls up a carpenter and says he's having some trouble with a do-it-yourself project. The carpenter comes over and takes a look and says, Well, all we really need is one nail. So he takes out his hammer and nails the one nail that he needs and hands the man a bill. And it says, One nail, fifty cents. Knowing where to hammer it, fifty dollars. Now that's a joke in only the loosest possible sense of the word. But there's a lesson there. Equipment is easy. Knowing where to use it is worth so much more. The value of knowing where is incalculable. Plenty of battles throughout history have been decided simply by knowing where to fight and where to deploy for maximum effectiveness. A brave general on the right ground can win even if everything else is disadvantageous, whether it's Myongyang or Pavankind or Rourke's Drift. At a small fortress in the area that now encompasses the Syrian-Turkish border, in the early 6th century AD, a young commander would show the mighty Persian Empire that even a great army was no match for knowing where. This is a battle of Dada. The area of Anatolia and the Levant have throughout history been contested by great empires since antiquity. Great powers would rise, fight, and fall all over the course of that region. In eastern Georgia, there was a small kingdom called Iberia, not to be confused with the Iberian Peninsula that contains modern-day Spain and Portugal. This small kingdom was nestled between two powerful empires, that of the Eastern Roman Empire, or the Byzantine Empire as it's sometimes known, and the mighty Sassanid Persian Empire. Near the turn of the century in 506 AD, the Byzantines and Sassanids made a peace treaty after the Anastasian War, establishing and fortifying the city of Dara to be the eastern outpost and a critical staging ground in the event of any hostility in the east. The truce was established for seven years. But even after the conclusion of the treaty, neither power decided to attack the other, not finding the effort to be worth the expenditure of blood and treasure. Indeed, relations between the Persians and the Byzantines were quite amicable. In 524 AD, the Sassanid Shah Qadav I wished for the Byzantine emperor, Justin I, to adopt his son Khosrow. Wishing to secure Khosrow's succession to the position of Shah due to fierce conflict with rival brothers. If Khosrow had the support of the mighty Eastern Roman Empire, that would provide a lot of pressure on his brothers to ensure and smooth Khosrow's succession. But just then, when things seemed to go so well, everything just seemed to fall apart. As conflict began, when the Iberians defected to the Byzantine Empire, because the Shah wished to convert them to the Sassanid state religion, Zoroastrianism. The Iberians were Christians, and fled to the support of Justin I, who pledged to support them. Despite this, the two sides were very reluctant to engage in a full-scale war in the beginning. The two instead would pay off bands of Arabs and Huns to attack the other's territory. When the Sassanids finally got going, they were able to crush the Iberian Revolt and pressure the Byzantine territories in the east into providing tribute for Kavad's army, helping to keep it in the field with grain and gold. Emperor Justin I died in 527 AD, and the new emperor 
was Justin's adopted son and biological nephew, Justinian I. Now, Emperor Justinian was a fascinating emperor, one of the most colorful and controversial emperors in Byzantine history, with a long line of remarkable and bloody accomplishments, mostly in retaking vast stretches of territory to include Rome, which had fallen into the hands of the Ostrogoths some time before. Justinian's grand plans to retake Rome, though, needed a secure eastern border with the Persians before Justinian could deploy his forces to the west. Justinian amassed a truly massive army and sent it to Dara under the command of General Sittas, but this army suffered an early defeat and placed Justinian in a position of weak negotiation. Kavad was uninterested in any peace talks at the moment, instead looking to capitalize on his advantage by sending a 40,000 large army to act as an attacking arm and a demonstration of the might of the Sassanid Empire. With no other choice but to return to the field, Justinian gathered an army of 25,000 troops and sent it out to meet the Sassanids. Now, 40,000 versus 25,000 is not very good math when you're the 25,000. But at the head of this army was one of the most exceptional commanders of all time, Flavius Belisarius. Now, Belisarius isn't as well-known outside military history circles as other more famous generals, but he is considered one of the all-time greats in both tactical ability and strategic vision. Not much is known about his early life, but he was probably born in an area that's now in southwest Bulgaria. As a young man, Belisarius served as a soldier in the bodyguard of Justin I, and this is where Justinian had noticed his ability as an officer and leader. Belisarius had designed his Bucellari, his household retinue, into a multifunction unit which gave him tremendous flexibility on the field. In the east, cavalry is armored in the style of the cataphract. That's a Greek word which means enclosed in armor. Originally designed on the steppes and spreading throughout southern Asia, the name cataphract and its signature characteristic was the scale male barding the horse wore in the battle. This helped protect the vulnerable beasts and allowed for more effective cavalry charges. Belisarius rigorously trained his cataphracti in the Hunnic style of mounted archery, as well as the use of the Gothic lance in a spirited cavalry charge, as well as the use of the Roman spatha. On the field, Belisarius could use his bucellarii into a charging mass to break up enemy formations with the heavy lance, followed by engaging the army on horseback with the spatha, or he could have them skirmish and fire with mounted archery, giving Belisarius the ability to fight effectively when confronted with different battlefield conditions. Belisarius is only 25 when Justinian gives him this command, and it shows one of the emperor's most fascinating and useful traits the ability to recognize talent and empower the individuals that have it into a position where they could best use it. Time and time again, Justinian would handle a crisis by finding the person who was best equipped to handle it, giving them the resources that could make it happen, and then giving them cover that only the emperor could provide. Belisarius was actually under Sitas' command during the first initial campaign against the Sassanids, but now that he was in full control of his army, he planned on making the most of it, and he marched to the city of Dara to make his stand. Belisarius wasn't alone. He was accompanied by Hermogenes, the Magister Officorum, 
which is a senior bureaucratic official in the era of Justinian, and that was used as a foreign affairs officer and a diplomat, as well as his loyal lieutenant and childhood friend named John. While Byzantine military history is full of lieutenants of doubtful loyalty, the commanders at Dara were very well organized and acted under the belief that they would succeed or fall together, giving Belisarius one of the most useful things for any pre-modern commander, a loyal and effective army. In response to Byzantine deployment, the Sassanids rose another 10,000 troops, camping them at Amodius, about five kilometers away, and bringing the general command under the Sassanid general Parosis of the great house of Miran, one of the seven mighty clans of Persia. Parosis, unfortunately, is not as well documented as Belisarius. There was very little in the historical record besides his participation in this battle. Procopius theorized that this Parosis had faced the Eastern Roman Empire before in the Anastasian War, but the veracity of this record is difficult to verify because Procopius compounded the title of Perosis with his clan name. Sassanid records from this period are sparse. Not many records survived the times before the conquest of the Rashidun Caliphate when it came to the frontier campaigns. Unfortunately, that means modern scholarship has to rely on Byzantine records instead. Accompanying Perosis was an old, one-eyed veteran named Parasmanas who commanded the elite of the elite when it came to the Sassanid Empire. These elites were the famous Zayadan, the elite heavy cavalry of the Persians. Two detachments of those famous troops rode with the army under Perosis. Now, the Zayadan were not the more famous Persian immortals of the Achaemenid era. These were the Sassanid versions and could be easily seen as spiritual successors. Both the Zayadan and the Immortals numbered 10,000 of the most experienced and well-equipped troops that the Persians had to offer. Both empires used this fixed number to establish a mythical sense of unit timelessness. That was why the Immortals were called the Immortals. But there's a big difference due to the evolving nature of warfare. The Achaemenid Immortals were heavy infantry using spears, wicker shields, and scale mail under heat-diffusing robes. The Zayadan were mounted, armed with lances and heavy armor in the cataphract style, with their noticeable spangen helms and gleaming breastplates. These cavalry were tremendously powerful with their great charge, famous for their discipline and their willingness to fight to the last man. At Dara, Belisarius elected to make his stand at the fortress proper. When he was in the field, he would be surrounded by the Persian army that outnumbered him. Knowing that he needed to prepare if he had any chance of success, Belisarius elected to dig wide trenches in front of the fortress. Now a trench is a simple enough defensive work, one of the earliest examples of breaking up the terrain to slow an advancing army. This became especially useful once the horse had become domesticated, bred large enough to support the weight of a fully armored human and trained for the rigors of warfare. The development of cavalry gave speed and momentum to warfare the likes of which infantry simply could not provide on their own. Digging a trench could create a barrier that could arrest a cavalry charge and provided a low-cost defense against cavalry. However, a trench constrained the movement of friendly troops 
and it required time to prepare. Oftentimes, the defender would line the bottom of the trench with sharpened stakes and smear them with feces or offal in a crude early form of biological warfare. In digging these trenches, Belisarius provided a defensive work for his numerically inferior army to hide behind. When seeing this defensive work, the Persians had elected to skirmish before committing to the battle. Skirmishing is actually incredibly common throughout all periods of warfare before a pitched battle. In the ancient era, light units using ranged weapons, which were usually slings, bows, and javelins, sometimes equipped with a light shield, would attempt to run up and cause light casualties to each other, hoping to provoke a reckless charge or cause a loss of morale to the enemy. Skirmishing could last days before the skirmishers would be folded into the regular army. Even generals who specialized in heavy armor understood the value of skirmishers. The heavy Macedonian phalanx of Alexander the Great was valuable, but so too was the humble peltast with the javelin and wicker shield that peppered the enemy before the battle. According to Procopius, the first day was famous for another type of warfare. The Persian commanders offered a series of battle by champion. Following a short skirmish, a young Persian man rode close to the Byzantine lines, calling forth for any to face him in single combat. The man that elected to go was not a soldier, but a slave named Andreas. Andreas was a huge man. He was a bath attendant and wrestling instructor who often worked with Belisarius's personal guard. This slave grabbed his spear, mounted a horse, and met the Persian charge. The mass of the blow knocked the young challenger from his horse. Andreas dismounted, planted his knee on the fallen soldier, and stabbed him to death with a small knife. Angry at this outcome, a second man came forth from the Persian lines. This time it was an older man of similar build to Andreas. Again, he issued the challenge to all of the Byzantine army. Andreas was forbidden to go out again, but he hid himself among a group of soldiers and stepped forward once Hermogenes lost sight of him. Both men attempted to knock each other off the horses, but in the past their mounts collided together, and they both fell over. The Persian general struggled to get up, but Andreas, who frequently took part in wrestling drills, got back to his feet quickly and was able to strike the Persian in the head while he was still getting onto his knees. This is an absolutely fascinating story, but as it's written by Procopius, is probably not true. Now, single combat and combat by champion did indeed happen during ancient and medieval warfare. Russia and India often had tribal disputes settled by a trial combat between two nominated champions, and duels were a great way to shock the morale of an opposing troop from Europe to China. Given that single combat did happen to both armies, and multiple sources make reference to individual duels, it is highly likely that at Dara there was at least one instance of single combat. But whether this bath slave Andreas was even a real person, whether he killed two champions in a single day, whether they happened when and how they were said to happen is a matter of no small scholarly debate. Primary sources are wonderful for getting the vicarious sense of an event in history as it is happening, but there's a caveat to that. Not all primary sources tell the truth, and dissecting the truth from the fables 
can be an exhausting process. Even the lies have value, though. They provide a window into the people that experience that event. When Procopius speaks of the great roars coming from the Roman camp when their champion Andreas wins his victories, or the hurried retreat of the Persian phalanx back to the camp at Imodius, these give a sense of the morale of the Eastern Roman soldiers. Outnumbered, willing to fight, grasping what victories they can to keep up the sense that they can win, this is a vivid picture. The Eastern Romans are giving thanks to their fortifications, their training, their champions, and their leader. Procopius wrote down Belisarius' speech to his men, where he shows how he can keep them together, where he acknowledges their fear and works to dismantle the hold that it has on his troops. As for the great numbers of the enemy, by which more than anything else they inspire fear, it is right for you to despise them. For their whole infantry is nothing more than a crowd of pitiable peasants who come into battle for no other purpose than to dig through walls, to despoil the slain, and in general to serve the soldiers. For this reason they have no weapons at all with which they might trouble their opponents, and they only hold before themselves those enormous shields in order that they might possibly be hit by the enemy. Therefore, if you show yourselves brave men in this struggle, you will not only conquer the Persians for the present, but you will also punish them for their folly, so that they will never again make an expedition into the Roman territory. What a speech! Belisarius delivers to his men a sense of Roman pride, and works to undermine the strength of the Persian army by saying, Yes, they have twice the men we do, but so what? They aren't armed. They're hiding behind those shields because they can do nothing to you. He goes on to say that if they acquit themselves well in battle, not only do they push the Persians back, but they'll teach them such a lesson that they'll never come back to this battlefield five years later. Even at a young age, Belisarius understood his men, what they fought for, and how to properly motivate them. At the beginning of the second day, with the 10,000 reinforcements now fully integrated into the Persian army, the two commanders exchanged messages. In his own message, Belisarius sought a diplomatic resolution before open battle would be joined, but Perosius was uninterested, intent on accomplishing his objectives as set out by the Shah. Perosius's message is an excellent boast, commanding that a bath be drawn, for he would reside that night in comfort in Dara's general's quarters. With battle unavoidable, the two sides looked to deploy their troops. Perosius deployed in the classical Persian formation, with his infantry and phalanx in the center making the line as deep as he could. The more experienced troops were near the edges with the Zaydan cavalry on the wings, supported by lighter cavalry, which were meant to act as a flank screen. His infantry were primary mercenary skirmish troops backed by peasant levies with their massive war elephants. The majority of this infantry, though, was pinned by Belisarius's trench. Across the field, Belisarius put his most unreliable infantry in the center close enough that they could be bolstered by supporting fire from Dara's defensive towers. The better, but still questionable, Byzantine cavalry was placed on the flanks to prevent the horses from using their superior speed to flank Belisarius's defenses. Along with these cavalry, Belisarius prepped some Haruli mercenary cavalry to lie in ambush to attack the Persian cavalry should they attempt to push on the flanks stationed behind the hills to his left. When battle was joined, Perosius ordered his cavalry to hit the sides of the Eastern Roman army, and both sides made steady progress, negotiating the gaps in the trenches and trusting in their heavy armor. On the Roman left, 
the cavalry under the Persian general Pityaxes made great progress and were able to cross the ditch. But at that moment, the Heruli cavalry attacked from the hills and took the Persian right completely by surprise, driving them from the field and sending them far back behind their lines before they could regroup. Not wanting to have his attack stall out, Perozes ordered his left to attack the Roman right even harder, using the Zaydan cavalry and hoping to break the Byzantine flank and roll up the line on the other side of the trench. The Persian left, under Berismanus, attacked brilliantly and drove the Romans right back, almost to the very wall of Zabdara itself. Only near those walls was Count John able to rally his troops back into fighting formation. Belisarius saw, however, that there was a gap. The Persian center was still behind the trench. The Persian left was almost the walls of Dara, and so Belisarius immediately commanded his troops to attack. The Hun cavalry and his own Bucellari attacked the Persian left, driving a charge that split the Persian line in two. The half of the Persians that were further away from the city walls were able to flee, but there was another half that weren't, about 5,000 in total. They were killed to the man, including their general, the one-eyed Berismanus. Immediately, Belisarius drove his cavalry forward and now attacked the vulnerable Persian left flank, now lacking the heavy Zaydan cavalry that they relied on to defend it. Picture that from the perspective of a Persian foot soldier. You have no armor. You have a shield that's used to create a defensive bulwark for the archers and slingers behind you. The famous Zaydan, the pride of Persia, on the cusp of victory, are encircled. Half flee the field. They're gone. The other half lies bleeding out in the dusty soil. On the other flank, what was thought to be another victory had turned into a full rout. Those Zaydan were equipped with heavy armor and helmets, with fine war horses. The same Roman army that were able to defeat those legendary warriors are now facing you, without any of the same equipment, without any of the same training. It's no wonder, then, that the infantry routed, and the Persians withdrew before they lost more men. With the cavalry broken and the infantry vulnerable, Belisarius' victory was complete. The Persians withdrew, and Belisarius, not wanting to be drawn into an open field battle, called off the pursuit after a few miles. The Persians lost some 8,000 men in total on the field, including a sizable number of their famous elites. The Romans won a commanding victory, causing the Persians to be wary to face the Byzantine armies in the field again. Belisarius would win a victory despite being outnumbered two to one. He looked to his defensive fortification and his knowledge of fieldcraft to build works that could eliminate the enemy advantage. He saw the hills that could provide adequate cover to place his Herulian cavalry behind them to surprise any attack on his left. He saw the gaps on the right and had his maneuver units take advantage. It was a tactically brilliant battle and a demonstration of true ability. But all of it stemmed from his ability to know where each of his units were at their most effective. The Roman victory at Dara wouldn't last. Belisarius himself would be defeated at Chalcinium though the victory was so pyrrhic that neither the Byzantines nor the Sassanids were capable of sustaining the campaign. The Iberian War would end in a victory for the Persians, in that they were able to keep Iberia and received a tremendous amount of tribute from Justinian. Justinian, though, was more concerned about his conquest in the west, 
where Belisarius would form a key part of his emperor's vision. He would lead the expeditionary force into Vandal-controlled Africa, into Ostrogothic Italy, but his long and storied career began at Dara and exhibited Belisarius's penchant for formation that took advantage of his individual unit's unique strengths and how he could get victory despite being outnumbered. When you're outnumbered and outgunned, just the ability to pick a battlefield might be enough to make up for all of your other shortcomings. Sun Tzu recognized the value of being the one to pick where war was waged, and commanders up to the modern counterinsurgency era of today all relish the chance to do battle upon the area of one's choosing. A good general would fit right in in the real estate market, because both would say that the three most important things are location, location, location. Thanks for listening.